we are in week two of a month-long focus on one book of the Bible. Uh, we've committed to looking at the book of James, to studying the book of James, to let God speak into our life through this, this one book in the Bible. Uh, we believe that God's word is transformational truth for our life, that it changes us when we engage with God in it, and we believe God has something for us in this book as a church. And so we are just staying in it and reading through it throughout the course of this month. And in fact, this may be the first time in your life that you actually literally read through an entire book of the Bible uh, over a, a focused amount of time. And if that's the case, that is a huge win for your life and for us as a church. So what I'd love for you to do is if you brought your Bible, would you pull it out now? And if you didn't, uh, you can grab one of the blue Bibles in front of you. Uh, because we're focusing, we teach from God's Word every week, but like I said, we're focusing on just this book this month. If you don't own a Bible, so you're here tonight and you, you want to grow and you want to explore what it means to know God, and you don't own a Bible, you can take this Bible home with you. I know we say this every week, but it's really important for us that you hear this. Please steal a Bible from church because we want you to not have anything get in the way from God speaking into your life and transforming and changing your life. So you can open up actually to James chapter 2. In the blue Bibles, it's page 847. James chapter 2. I want you to keep a finger there because we're going to dive into another passage, then come back to it and ask God to speak into our lives through it. As we said last week, uh, this book uh, was written uh, about a decade after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's one of the oldest books in the New Testament, one of the earliest books to be written in the New Testament. And what's unique about this book, unlike any other book in the Old Testament, is this book was written by James, the brother of Jesus. And so there's no one else in the Bible that had, no author in the Bible that had a closer relationship with Jesus than the author of this book, James. It was a letter written to a church that was on the move, that was growing in that day. A persecuted church that was being hunted down, arrested, and falsely accused, and even imprisoned and killed. And as we looked at last week in, in James chapter 1, God taught us through his word that our trials and our darkest hours are actually one of our greatest opportunities for our deepest growth. That God can leverage even the pain in our lives for some of our greatest growth. And James knew about that personally as well. We all do as well. This week we're going to sort of move on in our discussion, in our understanding, our study of God's word together by looking at one of the most controversial uh, chapters, certainly in this book, but one of the most controversial chapters in the book of the Bible. We all love a good controversy. Well, tonight you're, you're going to get one. Tonight we're looking at a passage that has at best confused some divided others, and stands as potentially a contradiction in the Bible. We believe that God's word works as a whole and speaks into our life. What we're about to read, for many years, confused and even caused controversy among well-meaning, well-intended people who love God's word. The stuff we're going to be looking at here tonight is the stuff that, that Bible nerds geek out about. And so we're going to dive in a little deep, pretty deep here tonight, in fact. So I want to make sure that we can all sort of do that together. This passage that we're looking at tonight from James chapter 2, one of the greatest Christian leaders in human history. Outside of the Apostle Paul, very few have had the impact of Martin Luther. Martin Luther is a great reformer who, in, you know, uh, through his life, God used him to push the church and the chapter of the story of the church in a new chapter, in a new direction. God used him to really, truly, in a, in a massive way, shape Part of what we do and what we experience here without even realizing, Martin Luther is a major, significant leader in the Christian story. And in 1522, he was writing a preface to the New Testament. He'd studied the New Testament and was writing sort of, you know, his, uh, uh, you know, sort of 
take on the whole New Testament. As he's writing that in the preface to his New Testament study, he wrote these words about the book of James, and specifically the passage that we're going to look at. He said, this book is nothing more than a book of straw. It holds no weight. And he went on to say, he wrote in his preface, it contains none of the nature of the gospel in it. So to me, that sounds like a fantastic book for us to read together as a church. (laughs) Clearly, this is one of the most important Christian leaders saying he wrestled with this. Now, two years later, he'd go back and take back his words. And he said, you know, okay, I I came on a little strong. I pumped my brakes a little bit. But it bothered him for the rest of his life how this passage is seemingly in conflict with other passages in the New Testament, specifically around one question that James forces us to ask and to face ourselves tonight, some almost 2,000 years later. The question that it drew it into conflict was this. What makes someone a Christian? What makes someone a Christian? Now, for those of you who would call yourselves Christians, that's an important question for you to consider. What makes someone a Christian? What makes you, for those of you who call yourself one, a Christian? Is it what you believe or is it what you do? This is the crux of this tension that we're going to look at tonight. What makes someone a Christian? Is it what they believe about God or is it what they do for God? Or is it the bumper stickers and t-shirts that they have? It's a difficult question to wrestle with, but we're going to focus on those first two. Is it what you believe about God, or is it what you do for God? Very important question. What makes someone a Christian? So to understand the passage that we're going to look at in James chapter 2, I want to take you to another chapter 2 of another book in the New Testament to, to sort of lay the landscape of this seeming controversy. So I would ask you just to read along on the screens with me from Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at the writings of the Apostle Paul and what he would say to the answer to the question, what makes someone a Christian? Paul answers it in several passages, but this is the one we're going to focus on tonight. And what I'd ask you to do is I'm going to pause every now and then. When I pause, would you speak the word back to me? It's that way it's a way for us to engage with the transforming truth of God's word and to, to make sure you're not falling asleep or in a bear's victory lull. So uh, let's do this. Let's read this passage from Ephesians 2. This is how Paul would answer the question, what makes someone a Christian? Paul says these words, for it is by what? Great, great job, five (laughs) o'clock. I'm serious. I'm going to tell the nine and the 11 about you guys. Uh, For it is by grace that you have been saved through what? This is very important. Paul is saying, what makes someone a Christian? Well, it's what makes you a Christian is faith in God's grace. This is very important. This is not from who? Yourselves. It's the gift of who? God. Not by what? Works so that no one can boast. It is by grace, through faith, believing in what God has done, not works, not what you can do. The answer to the question, what makes someone a Christian, seemingly when we read this passage from Ephesians chapter 2, is this, it is not what you do, it is what God has already done for you through Christ Jesus. That's what makes someone a Christian. That's what it seems like Paul's answer would be. It's not what you can sort of do to impress God or to earn his love or to be a good enough person to make it on God's radar or to make it into heaven. Paul would say, no, it is you putting your faith, you believing in what God has already done for you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through your Sins being covered by his death and resurrection. Your faith and belief in that 
is what makes you a Christian. Paul says it not only here, but all throughout the book of Romans, several times, so many times, in fact. It's not what you do, it's what God has done for you, and you believing in that. So that should settle it. But then we come to James chapter 2. It's very important for us to wrestle with this. So what I'd love for you to do is look at James chapter 2, verse 14. Paul seemingly would answer the question by saying, it's what you believe. But let's look at what James says. James chapter 2, verse 14, page 847 in the Blue Bibles. James says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no what? Deeds or works. What good is it if you say you believe but you're not doing anything? Can such a faith save them? Can you see where it sounds like a controversial and even conflicting statement here? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food or without access to a great education or in a neighborhood that is overlooked and under-resourced. Suppose you come into contact with someone like that and you say to them, go in peace. Keep warm and well-fed. I mean, you can see James is kind of brooding as he writes this. What good is it if you come into contact with someone in physical, with very real physical needs, and you say, good luck with that thing. I can see that you're in need, but I'm running late. So, you know, go in peace, via con Dios, whatever. Like, you just sort of go on your way because I need to go on mine. James would say, no, 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 no. What good is that? If you do nothing about their physical needs, what good is that faith? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is what? Dead. So he's not mixing words here. He goes on to say, okay, okay, some of you will say, okay, you have faith and I have deeds. So we kind of go about this God thing a different way. So you're kind of from the faith camp and it's all about what you believe. I'm from the deeds camp and so it's sort of all about what I do and that's great. We can kind of all go about it our different way. But James says, no, no, no. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you, I can actually show you my faith by what I do. You can see it by what I do. You believe that there's one God. Now, we'll just pause on that statement right there. You believe there's one God. What is James calling out here? He's calling out a distinction among the early church. This early band of Christians was born out of Jewish faith, God's people throughout the story of the whole Old Testament. What made them unique in the world was they believed in one God. They were surrounded by, in the Old Testament, Egyptian culture, and then later, Roman culture and Greek culture that believed in many gods, polytheistic cultures. In fact, most of the world worshiped many, many, many gods. Not God's people. They worship one God. And that's what made Christians unique, was they put their faith in one God. And James says, that's so great. Good for you that you believe in one God. That's fantastic. But listen, even the demons believe that and shudder. He's putting the bar, like, down here. <laughs> like, A plus for effort. But even the demons believe that and shudder. They acknowledge who God is. They believe in him and fear him. James goes on to say this. This is fascinating. He goes on to take, and this, seemingly, this is why Bible nerds geek out about this kind of stuff, because he goes on to deliberately take the central character of the Old Testament attributed to faith. 
He takes what any God-fearing Jew or Christian who'd been converted from Judaism would know in an instant, that's the person to go to, to think of when I need a mental image of faith. It's Abraham. And James deliberately chooses Abraham to say, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he what? Did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar and God was putting his faith to the test? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. What a beautiful thing to be called. God's friend. You see, people are justified by what they do and not faith alone. He goes from the central faith figure of the Old Testament to a now shocking character in the Old Testament and chooses Rahab, who was not a Jew, who was not only part of the enemy that, in a certain battle that he references here, but was also a prostitute in the town of the enemy. And James says, in the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? And listen to this. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds, is dead. You see what James is doing here? He's saying, faith, great. You believe in God, great. Show me. Show me. Faith without deeds is dead. And it's seemingly, at first pass, you read Ephesians chapter 2, which we just read, and then you read James chapter 2, and you go, wait a second. They don't sound like they're playing off the same playbook. In fact, it seems as though they are reacting or responding to each other and in fact are in conflict with each other. And so this is what has divided many, many, many Christians throughout the years. Centuries, in fact. That do you sort of fall the James path of you have to have deeds with your faith or do you fall on the Paul side of the map which says, no, it's faith and faith alone in what God has done. This has caused great dissension and division among Christians if you can believe this or not. This is some deep-seated rivalry stuff. This is some bears and packers kind of stuff. Some bulls and heat kind of stuff. This is East Coast, West Coast, Tupac, Biggie kind of stuff. Okay, <laughs> lines are drawn. You're either with James and you're about your faith being lived out in actions or you're with Paul and you're about faith in God alone. And so lines have been drawn and people have been divided and well-intended Christians have been confused and have struggled with that question. What makes me a Christian? Is it what I believe or is it what I do? What makes someone a Christian? How can it be that two people following the same teachings of Jesus, one of them even being his brother, can seemingly land with two totally different approaches to a relationship with God. How is it that two people inspired by the same God can contribute to the same Bible and yet seemingly be saying different things? It's like living in a great city with two major league baseball teams. It's a lot of conflict involved. How can it be? How can these two work together in the same thing? And many people throughout the years have said, well, see, that's why the Bible can't be trusted. It contradicts itself. This passage has been one of the ones that people throughout the years have said, well, see, look, I mean, Martin Luther said, you know, it's a book of straw. It doesn't hold any weight. How can it seemingly contradict itself? What James is wanting us to pay attention to is what he 
reiterates throughout this whole letter that we're studying this month is that faith is no faith at all if it is not at work in your life. The faith has to work itself out. That believing is great and believing is the right place to start. But faith has to be lived out. It has to be something you do and not just something you believe. And maybe, although the Bible tells us that James didn't put his faith into Jesus until after his brother's death and resurrection. You imagine that just for a second. You literally share a bunk with the Savior of the world and you don't get it. You can be that close to God and still miss it. And yet that's what it was. That was the story of James. That close to the Savior of the world and it wasn't until after his death and resurrection that he became the Savior of his world. And so what you see is James, brother of Jesus, maybe, I don't know, he heard stories of, or maybe he was there when he heard his brother Jesus say again and again and again, follow me, follow me, do something, follow me. If you would read through the gospel accounts that tell the story of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in those gospel accounts, Jesus says the words follow me four times more than he says the phrase believe in me. He still says believe in me. Believe in me and the one who sent me. Believe that I and the Father are one. Believe in me. But four times as much, he says the words, follow me. That faith is right and good, and it's actually the right place to start. But faith has to lead to following. It has to lead to action. This is what James is saying again and again and again. It's as though that, that doing, the working out of our faith, that doing becomes the difference between our believing and our becoming. I don't want to write that down. It's going to be one of the smartest things I say tonight. <laughs> doing is the difference between our believing and our becoming. Doing is the difference between our believing and our coming. Let me just, those of us who have ever got on a health kick or a fitness kick and you wanted to sort of take the reins of your life and your wellness and your health, you know how it goes. You get all fired up or you look in the mirror and get all disgusted and you say, okay, <laughs> something has to be done. And so what you do, you go and sign up for a gym and you go and sign up for a really nice gym and they have great equipment. And you're so excited. You go get an outfit because you have to have a great outfit to work out. And so you get the shorts and the shirt and the shoes and you are ready to go. But signing up for the gym and buying the clothes does not make you healthy or fit, does it? What actually does it? Doing it, exercising, eating healthy, doing it. You can believe that you're going to be healthy by wearing the outfit around the house. But that doesn't do it for you, does it? It's when you say, okay, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other. I'm going to make a choice today. I'm going to make a hard choice today. It's the doing that makes our, it's the difference between our believing and our becoming. Who we want to be and us actually becoming who God created us to be. It's, there's something to doing that James keeps drawing our attention to. Keeps drawing our eyes to seeing. So for those of you who would call yourselves Christians, you've put your faith in God. You believe in God, right? You would say that you believe in God. I know we have people all over, and I love that we have people all over the spiritual spectrum at our church. I love that. But I want to speak just to, and maybe even pick on, those who would call yourselves Christians, just for a minute. You've put your faith in God. You believe in God. You believe in his word. You want to live a life that actually pleases God. You have that desire. You believe it. You've signed up. You're all in. Here's the question for you. 
Does what you do day to day reflect or reveal what it is that you say you believe? Just a simple, no, no guilt, no shame, just an honest question. Does what you do reflect what you believe? Is what you claim to believe and what you desire for your life, is that working itself out in the choices that you make? Let me put it another way. Do people at your work know what you believe by what you do? Well, the people that you surround yourself with eight hours, ten hours a day, all throughout the week, some of the people you spend the most amount of your life with, your week with at the very least, would they know what you believe based on how you live and what you do? Not what you claim or what you say, or, but what you do, how you treat other people in the office, the integrity with which you move about your work, the attitude that you show up with that is a joy that is greater than circumstance. Would they be able to look at how you act and how you live and determine what, what conclusion would they draw about what you believe? What about your friends? What would your friends, these are people that you love spending time with and maybe they know you better than anyone else. These people who might know you better than anyone else, what would they determine you believe based on what you do? And instead of just kind of asking a broad sort of question, what would your friends determine you believe based on what you've done this weekend? What would they... What lines would they draw to go, oh yeah, no, it's so clear. The choices that they've made or the way that they treated me or the way that they looked out for me, the way that they looked to serve, like there's something different about that person. It's so clear to me because what they believe is coming out in what they do. And I can tell by how they live there's something different about them and it traces back to what you believe. What would your spouse say? You believe based on how you treat her how you love her, serve her, put her first. For those of us who have kids, what would your kids say? What would they determine you believe based on how you do it? Again, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about being Jesus. We're talking about following Jesus. What would they determine you believe based on what you do day to day, in all throughout, we can claim all kinds of things to believe here in this space on Sunday, but does how we live on Monday reveal, reflect what we say we believe? This is what James keeps bringing to the surface for us. That our beliefs and our actions, they have to be connected. That's what God's actually created us for. It's fascinating that there's an activist, a social activist in the 60s and, and into the 70s named Jerry Rubin. And he said this profound quote in the face of a lot of opposition and challenge and a lot of people promising this, that, and the other. He said, look, you show me what you do and I'll show you what you believe. Let me watch you for a day. Let me watch how you spend your money. And I'll, I, I can determine from watching you from one day, through one day, I can determine what you really believe about your resources and where they come from and what your responsibility is to them just by how you act. Again, this isn't a judgmental thing or heavy thing. It's just a fact. Like, you show me what you do for a day and I can, I can tell you what it is that you really, truly believe. So what is it that makes someone a Christian? Is it what you do or is it what you believe? Now, thinking back to this uh, and trying to understand this concept more as God is challenging and growing me through this passage. And I, 
thought back to what Gene and I celebrated a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, on August 10th, we celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary. That's pretty cool. Okay, that was mediocre at best. I will, I will forgive you for your lackluster applause for 16 years of marriage. It was, it, we did not do it for that applause, let me just tell you right now. And people ask all the time, like, 16 years of marriage. And I go, I know, it's weird. We got married when we were 14, so it, if, you do the, if you do the math, it all adds up. So. so this is what's really interesting. We had a relationship before we got married. We dated three years, in fact, before we got married. And while we were dating, we were building a foundation for our marriage. There were times where we were conscious of it and times where we weren't. But we were building a foundation of our marriage by what we did, you know, to build that relationship, to build our long, lifelong relationship, how we treated each other, the choices that we made. But there was a day where we got married. There was a day where everyone got dressed up. Jeannie looked beautiful in a white dress. I rented a tux from the mall. Everything, <laughs> there was all kinds of pictures there. And we, we made vows to each other. We made promises to each other, commitments to each other, things that we believed, convictions, I will be this for you. I will do this for you. We made vows, not just to each other, but before God. This is what marriage is. And on that day, a, a pastor kind of, you know, stood over that and officiated that and said, great, by the power vested in me, by the state of Illinois and the gospel of the minister, or minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I now pronounce you man and wife. You know, well done. And on that day, in that moment, we were married. We got married. We were married. And so there was a day, there was a moment where it happened, where we got married. The reality is, our marriage has been every day since then. Our marriage has grown based on how we're willing to actually live out the vows that we said we believed and the convictions we held on that day at our wedding. Does that make sense? And so every day since that day, August 10th, 1996, every day since that day, we have had the invitation opportunity to live out what we claimed to believe in that church all dressed up on that day. Make no mistake about it. We were married on that day, but we have lived our marriage out every day since. And when we got to around our, our 10th or 11th anniversary or so, you know, there's only so many anniversary gifts that you can think up to get each other and, you know, so many bottles of perfume or, you know, after a while we were just like, you know what, I think we can do something a little more original than this. And so we made a commitment to each other on our anniversary that we would spend more energy on a creative reflection of how we were going to live our vows out with each other and for each other that year. And so we started making each other gifts for our anniversary. I used to make Jeannie gifts all the time when we were dating. She did not like it as much then. <laughs> but it works now. And so this is just from our 15-year anniversary. It's just 15 vows. So every year we add another vow for that year that we commit to each other. And this is what we give to each other on our anniversary to remind us of what we said we believed to be true however many years ago. As we celebrate 15 years together, I vow, this is mine that I wrote to Jeannie, I vow to you, my love, to pursue a transformational relationship with Jesus Christ above all things. Two, to pursue you intentionally, thoughtfully, romantically, and responsibly. Responsibly means that I wasn't that responsible with it in our past. 
wasn't that intentional with in our past. To partner with you to create the most amazing, loving family environment. Four, to listen well before I speak. Five, to be fully engaged with the business of our family. Six, to lead our times of praying together. Seven, to making you and our kids more important than any other temporary distraction. Eight, to being a man of my word. Nine, to finishing what I start and to start without being asked. Ten, to speak your love languages fluently and regularly. And Jeannie is multilingual in love languages. (laughs) She has all five. She takes all of them, speaks them all as well. And so every year we remind each other of what we said to be and what we believe to be true on that day. There is something about our marriage being built every day since that day. It's what we do. No one has ever come to Jeannie and I and asked if we're married. And when we say yes, said, I'm going to need to see the marriage certificate, please. The way they know we're married is by how I love and serve my wife how I lay my life down for her, how she places my needs above her own, how I do that with her as well, how we spur on each other's relationship with God. People know that we're married, not just because of rings, not because of a certificate somewhere in a safe, but because of what we do. That's how our relationship grows, and that's how the world knows that we belong to each other. And it's not all that different in our relationship with God. There is a day, there is a time, there is a moment where you place your faith and belief in Jesus. And it's very important that you say, you know what, I can keep on trying to do this on my own. I can keep trying to go by my works and, 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 and sort of earn my way into either getting God's attention or God's approval. And you can try and do that. But for those of us who've tried to do that, it's exhausting, isn't it? And it's like the goal line just keeps moving. When is it ever good enough? We never know until we die, and then it's too late. Or what you can say is, I choose to put my faith in what you have done through your son Jesus. I choose that. I believe you, God. I don't just believe in you. I believe you, God. That's a very significant step. And then that step is followed by the next step, and the next step, which is now following God which is actually doing, which is actually living out your faith so much so that the world will take notice of what you believe because of what you do. That there's no inconsistency or incongruity between what you claim to believe and what you actually do. See, all all this... controversy and frustration that Martin Luther had with the book of James and does it contradict Paul? Honestly, when I read the scriptures, when I read the passage we're about to read together, I go, no, 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 these two were not competing against each other. They were actually completing each other. Yes, faith. Yes, works. Both. I put my faith in what God has done and I do, I work that out from there with God. I work that out. In fact, here's what's interesting. I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, and then I want to add verse 10. Remember this when we read this a minute ago? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by what? 
works so that no one could boast. But then read on to verse 10 what Paul says. For we are God's handiwork. The word there is actually his poema, his poem, his, his sculpture, his work of art, his unique imprint in this world. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to what? Do good what? Works. Wait a second. Paul, here you are saying exactly what we've been talking about. What seems to be a contradiction is actually completion. It is not by your works that you're saved, but because you are in a relationship with God, you are able to actually do the works God has created you to do and prepared in advance for you to do. I am not saved by my works. I'm saved for the works that God wants to do through me. That's very important. It's very important that we understand the difference. Being a good person doesn't do it. But if your life has not been changed after you've put your faith into Jesus and you are not actively, not perfectly, actively working that out, then something is off. You have been saved by what God has done so that you can do what he's created you to do in this world, in this city, at your work, with your friends in your family. This is what Paul and James are saying. Yes, faith, and yes, actions. The two work together and, in fact, complete each other and not only change and transform us, but change and transform the world around us. And so because we really believe in taking next steps here and being responsible with our relationship with God and wanting to pursue growth in our relationship with him, I want to encourage us to, to take a step forward together as a church over the course of this next week. And because like, if you're anything like me, you, you come here and we have a great time together, incredible music, and we hear from God's word, and great to see our friends, and best coffee in the city, and so we have all that going on. And then you go out and you, and you go to dinner and you're like, oh, church was so great tonight. Oh, yeah, what did they talk about? Um, it was in James. Uh, <laughs> So I know we forget, and we, and we get distracted. God knows that more than, than we do. And so what I'd ask you to do, I want us to actually have a little accountability in our next step. So uh, there should be, in your seat back or if you're in the front row in the front of you, uh, a little sort of welcome and, and connection card here. You may have filled one of these out in the past, but I want to use it for a different purpose here tonight, this weekend. Because I want us to be responsible with our next steps. And I would ask you, all you really need to fill out is your name and clearly your email so that we can actually pray for you and help connect you to the next step that God has for you. And you can use the space anywhere on here that you want to write out any one of these next steps that I'm going to mention. I wanted to mention just a few to you right now that may be the best way for you to actually work out what you believe, to do what you say you believe this week. And I'm going to start with just that choice right there. That for you, maybe tonight or watching online right now, maybe for you, the most important next step is your first one. And that you would say, you know what? I don't think I've ever placed my faith fully in God. I've been going at this one alone. I've been trying to sort of do the good person plan, and it just it doesn't seem to be complete. It doesn't seem to be working. And so for you to say, today, this week, I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. I want to actually put my faith in him. Take that first step to put my faith in what he has done. Best thing for me to do is to put my faith in what he has done for me through his son, Jesus Christ. And so you can write your name, email on there, and literally check the box in the back that says, 
I want to start a relationship with Jesus. And what we will do is we will help you take that next step. We think it's the most important decision of your life. You will not make a more important decision than that to begin a relationship with Jesus based on what he has done so that you can begin to do what he's actually created you to do and you can be all of who he's created you to be in this life, on this earth. I think that for some of us, that is it. That there's, that's the most important thing you need to hear. And we will never, ever grow tired or weary of inviting people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that may be it for you. The next step is your first step. But maybe if you've made that decision to enter into a relationship with Jesus, you've already made that. Let me suggest a few that are pretty clear throughout Scripture that maybe you've tried and fumbled at before, but you might want to make a commitment this week. I actually want to do what I say I believe. First one is simply this. We can all do this together. You have a desire to read God's Word. You know this is transformational truth for your life. It's just you don't seem to get around to actually reading it. And you have good intentions, and maybe you've tried to do it before, but you've got stuck. Maybe you've even bought, in your house, there's a couple Bibles, and you have them strategically placed throughout the house just to give you as many opportunities as possible. But it's still hard, it's difficult. We allow ourselves to be incredibly distracted. But what if we said, not this week? If I believe this truth can change my life, then I want to engage with God in it. I don't want to miss a day. And so this week, you would spend the entire week reading James chapter 2, what we taught through tonight. Look, we already walked through half of it tonight. So as you read it again every day, to be reminded of this truth, that God has created you, he's literally created you for a relationship with him. And one of the ways that we live that out is by engaging with him in his word. Maybe that's the best thing. And for you on your card, just write the word anywhere you can next to your name and email, Bible. And what we will do is pray for you this week that you would engage with God through his word. For some of us who call ourselves Christians, you've made that decision to put your faith in Jesus, and there's a very clear next step that Scripture teaches, and that, in fact, Jesus modeled for us, and that's the next step of baptism. In fact, I asked our team if they would bring in the baptismal here this weekend. It's not full of water. It's just here as a reminder to us that this is what transformation looks like in public. When someone has put their faith in Jesus, the next step after that first step is to declare that to the world. To say this inward transformation that God has done in my life, I want to make an outward declaration of that. And so we celebrate that through baptism. And in a couple weeks, we're going to be celebrating baptism here. And I would love to hold your hand in the waters of baptism. And maybe when you were a kid, you, <laughs> your parents baptized you, and that was very well-intentioned by them, and it was a beautiful moment. Listen, that was way more for them than it was for you. They got the photo op out of it. You don't even remember it. Great move, but if you have put your faith in Jesus and have yet to make that public, in two weeks when we do baptism, I would love for you to be in those waters with us, making that known. And maybe you think, oh man, listen, I don't. <laughs> like, I became a Christian when I was 14 at camp. That was many years ago. And if I go in baptism now and I tell that story and they hear my story, people are going to think I look like a slacker that it's taken me this long to get baptized. No. Do you know what they will see? They will see someone living their faith out in front of them. And I don't want you to miss that. I don't want a single person who comes to this church to miss the opportunity to see a life transformed. And you have no idea how God might use your story to speak into someone else's life. If you've made that first step to follow Jesus and haven't yet made that next step of baptism that Jesus modeled for us, 
then write the word baptism on that card. We will get you connected, get you the information you need to take that next step. And then I would say, uh, Jeannie mentioned it, Kenya talked about it. If you have read God's word at all, you believe what God says to, to be true, then you, you know God's heart for the, the poor is strong and clear throughout Scripture. There may be times in your life where you're not sure where God is at or what he's up to. You can always know that God is always with the poor and the oppressed and the overlooked. In fact, Jesus said, if you ever get confused as to what I look like, go and be with those who are overlooked and you will find me there. You believe that. Well, this is a great opportunity for you to put that in faith, that faith into action. And to say, not if I have a spare hour in my week, I will make an hour in my week to be with these students, to be on that campus, to pray for those teachers, to walk those halls, to go literally on the other side of Ashland and say, I will be here where God already is. And to actually put it into action. You can sign up for that tonight. That's like a next step you can do tonight. You can do that. And then lastly, I would say, and Jeannie mentioned this, one of the most transformative things for our marriage and our relationship has been the process of us Choosing to trust God with the resources he's entrusted to us. And you may have put your faith in God, and you have a relationship with him, but you're still holding out on this one. You're still holding out on this one, and it's hard, and I know, I get it, I know. It's a hard, it is a sacrifice. But it has become our joy. It has become our joy to give back to God what he has so generously given to us to trust God back with what he's entrusted to us. And maybe for you, that faith being put into action comes down to you loosening the grip of your stuff and just saying, you know what, I'm going to start somewhere. I may want to say, oh, well, I have to wait till I get more money or I have to wait till I kind of have this in order and I understand every one of those things, but it's just start somewhere. It starts with you saying, I want to put my faith into action and I'm going to start here with God. And if you want to do that, you can literally write give, just your name, email, and the word give. We will pray for you, and we will help you take that next step this week. We believe not only does it fund all the stuff that God has been doing here to grow this church, to partner with Brown Elementary, to be a gift and a light to the families and the folks in this neighborhood and in this city, but the greatest transformation that God does when we give is in our own hearts. And for those of you who've made that step to put your faith in action, you know that to be true. And that may be the best next step for you this week. And so you can just write give. And we would love to help you do that. We're so serious about putting our faith into action. We can talk all we want. We can sing all we want. But doing is the difference between believing and becoming. Doing is the difference between believing and becoming. That's when we begin to live the life that God actually created us to live. And so what I would love to do is to pray for you, to pray for us that we would be... Uh, living that out this week. We would take God up on his invitation, James and Paul up on their challenge to have a faith that actually lives itself out in our lives. So what I'd love for you, would you stand up right now? We're going to pray together. The card that you've written on, you can literally leave on your seat. Don't have to worry about it. Don't have to drop it off anywhere else. Just leave it on your seat. We will come up and grab it. We will connect with you this week. But for right now, what we want to do is actually come to God and say, okay, God, I don't want there to be any inconsistency or any incongruity in what I say I believe and what I actually do. And so we want to bring our whole selves to God. What we say and what we do, surrender all of who we are to all of who God is and to trust him 
to help us become who he actually created us to be. So can I pray for you? Can we pray together as a church? God, thank you for who you, for who you are. That you are a God who already moved on our behalf in our direction. That you came to us before we could ever come to you. God, that you demonstrated your love for us by sending your son Jesus to die for us, to be raised by your power from the dead, to literally end sin's hold on our lives, and to offer us forgiveness and freedom and hope and a new life with you. Jesus, thank you that you made it so clear to us that as long as we remain connected to you, we will bear fruit. We will bear fruit. We connect our lives to you, not only put our faith in you, but connect our lives to you and follow you, and you will actually cause fruit to grow in and through our lives that is a gift to those around us. There will be growth and there will be fruit when we are connected to you. And so that's what we want to do. We want to be connected to you. We want to do what you're inviting us to do next, whatever that next step is may be, that we wouldn't just talk about it or feel guilty about it next week for not doing it, but we would start and we would demonstrate our faith in you by what we do this week. Thank you, God, that you love us so much that you actually walk with us every step of the way, that you're actually the one who gives us the courage and the strength to do what you've put us on this earth to do, and you are the one who makes us into all that you've created us and intended us to be. So we come to you now, offering our words, offering our hearts, ultimately, God, offering our lives to you and trusting you with it. Thank you, God, for hearing us, for responding to us, for growing, saving, and changing us. We pray this in your name. Amen.